Colin was 14, a straight-A student in a program for gifted kids, but he hated school. And this spring, a few weeks before the end of eighth grade, before he would leave middle school forever, he looked at his grade point average, did a little calculation, and realized something kind of amazing. I had a high enough GPA that I could flunk every class in eighth grade all the way through, and I would still graduate. Even if I had turned in nothing, I would have had a D average for that for that semester, and the D average would turn into an overall B average overall. And so I had no reason to go. So I didn't go. He didn't just quit school all at once, though. For a while, he went to class, but quietly and deliberately stopped doing his work on principle. There was lots of days when I just didn't do any work at all, and I would just sit through class and wait for the bell to ring and give the appearance that I was working or copy off people or things like that. And so, Wasn't it more boring doing nothing? No. Did you have a book you were reading where you could just kind of like sit in the no, bed? You know? I don't really read, so... Yeah. Or a magazine or something. Like, like, get something That's something like, look, that they could of... point at, though. I mean, I, wouldn't, I wasn't giving him anything they could point at. So if I did something like that, then they could say, well, he was reading while we were supposed to be working. Right. That would be deliberately defying their instructions. Where it's just sitting there and not working. Right. There's nothing more they can do. And, and when it comes to high school, will you work in high school? Of course, because high school, you're working towards the rest of your life. You're working towards what college you'll go to, and what college you go to decides what career you choose and what career. In middle school, my counselor reassured me that it doesn't count for anything, that this will be all disregarded after this year is over. He cut school completely one time, and then a second time. And both times the school tried to call his parents, but Colin naturally intercepted those messages and erased them from the family answering machine. And the third day that Colin cut school, it led to a kind of uh, uncomfortable moment for his dad. His dad, you see, is a behavior specialist for the public schools, in charge of training administrators how to keep kids doing what they're supposed to be doing. At 100 schools in three counties in Oregon, including the school that Colin attends. In in your job, do you deal with kids who um, don't show up at school? Yep. And I was in the school for a meeting in regard to something else, and the vice principal said, oh, are you here because of the call? And I said, call. And she said, well, Colin is not in school all day. And I like news to me, and so I called my wife, and she said, I got a a call earlier. Can we just pause on that moment for a second? Okay, so you're here to coach them about disciplining and controlling children. And in the middle of this, they mm-hmm. say to you, oh, by the way, you got our call about your son hasn't shown up today. What's mm-hmm. that like for you? Um, it's a little uh, a kind of, uh, it's sort of almost like belching in a crowd, you know. It's, <laughs> it's just a little awkward. So I left work and went home. So I went there, and there he was. Much to his surprise, he saw me walk in the door. Sort of like, what are you doing here? He came into my room, and where the hell have you been? And back and forth about what were you doing, what were you thinking, what was your logic for this? And that's when I really told him. 
I had enough credits to graduate and I didn't need to pass any more classes. Uh, there's no point. At some points in this way, did you find yourself kind of convinced by him? From the beginning. I know what schools are like. I am there. I mean, I know the reality of that. It would be one thing for me to have this illusion about that, but yeah, I mean, there's a part of me wanted to laugh, but there's another part of me that wanted to strangle him. <laughs> so you're simultaneously proud of him and completely flummoxed. Yes, baffled <laughs> and beside myself, and needing to get back to work. <laughs> and wishing this weren't so. It's kind of a stumper what to do. On the one hand, Colin had a point. He was thinking independently, which his dad wants. Maybe the right thing to do would be to let Colin stop doing his schoolwork and then force him to live through the consequences of that very adult decision. Maybe that would teach him something useful. On the other hand, Colin had a history of trying to wriggle out of his responsibilities. And so letting him wriggle out of something so big and important it just didn't sit right. His dad tried to convince him to return to school. That event triggered a three-week period of knockdown, drag out, screaming, crying, yelling. And at one point in the middle of a argument, I said, Colin, I need to, it's sort of in a, kind of in a moment of intensity, I sort of went, you know, time out. <laughs> you know, I need to clarify something here. And that is that I don't know that I'm right. How'd that go over? He said, well, that's reassuring. <laughs> sort of, well, that's reassuring. <laughs> so he, he was like, you're telling me I got to go to school, because of that, but you don't even know that you're right. And I said, no, I don't know that right. I said, this is my best guess, given the information available to me. Colin's dad says this is par for the course. You can't raise kids without getting into situations where you don't know what to do. Because as kids develop, they fight against you, try to get their independence. And sometimes you have to let them win those fights. And sometimes you have to stop them. And at every stage in their growth, there's going to be situations where it's going to be unclear what to do, what is best. Which brings us to the subject of today's radio program. From WBEZ Chicago, is This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Today we have two stories about adults struggling to figure out what is in the best interest of some child. In situations where what is best is not so clear. Act one of our program, I'd prefer not. In that act, as you heard... A 14-year-old boy nearly gets the last word with his own father. Act 2, Exodus of 1. In that story, a 3-year-old girl comes into this country from another country with illegal papers, and authorities don't know what to do with her, and make their best guess. Years later, one of the officials goes on a search to find out if they did the right thing. Stay with us. Act one, I prefer not. So during this three-week fight between Colin and his dad, Colin did agree to go back to school until it was resolved. And one day in math class, the teacher, as you'd expect, noticed that Colin was doing absolutely nothing. She asked me if I did my homework last night, and I said no. And she asked me why, and I said, because I don't want to. And she said, okay, well, are you planning on doing it? And I said, if I feel like it. So she sent me to the office. And, and did you say this in kind of an angry way, or were you just as neutral? I was, no, really polite about it. I said, well, there's no point. So she sent me to the office. It wasn't like I was trying to be mean to her about it. I mean, she even told my mom later that, well, he was really polite about it. 
And so she sends him down to the office. She can't have him. I mean, it's open defiance in front of all the rest of the students. And if she says, okay, the rest of the students look around and say, hmm, <laughs> it worked for him. Uh, I was in the office and I had been waiting in the focus room, which is basically a room with a table and a chair in it. And I was probably in the there. focus room? Yeah. I mean, like, focus on what you had done? I guess. The focus room. There's uh, one window that have no handles on them. There's no way to get out besides the door. They, um, well, there's no way to get any, out of any room besides the door. Well, the, the window. But oh, the window. I they, actually took, <laughs> they actually took the handle out of the window, and it oh, was no, hot in there, and... For I had probably been in there for an hour and a half to close to two hours, and then my dad came and I walked into the room and I said, "What can I do to help?" And so we left the building and walked around, and I had the "You can't throw in the towel" speech. Throwing in the towel, yeah, he used that a lot. Yeah, that was his favorite analogy. I probably hear that about 10 times a week. and You can't throw in the towel. Can't throw in the towel. I said, I'm not going to let you throw in the towel. Can't throw in the towel. Can't throw in the towel. I mean, I would hear it over and over. I could hear it coming. I could be like, oh, here comes the towel. I could <laughs> mouth it. I could mouth the words. Now, were you aware during this period that you were posing kind of a puzzle for your dad? I was, and I was enjoying it. Say a little more about that. Um, he deals with kids who have problems like that every day, and so... He's an expert. It's like, it's trying to beat Michael Jordan on one-on-one, -on -one, you know? Was there, like, a most satisfying moment of it that you remember you just thought, like, yes, okay? Well, actually, yeah. <laughs> when? When he told me that he didn't know it was right, that was the moment when I thought <laughs> I, I beat Michael Jordan. What I figured out was that what we really needed to do is get through the end of the year. And I had this discussion with Colin, and we agreed. And so what I worked out was him being able to come to Chicago from Oregon and be with his sister for a couple of days for a weekend. And Oh, you gave him a reward if he would actually go to school. Right. Oh, and, a bribe. Well, and you, yeah. I asked your dad how it was resolved, and he said... He basically just tried to bribe. <laughs> did, did he say how he would bribe me? That you got to come out to Chicago. He thought, oh, so he was trying to bribe me with the Chicago trip? Well, he didn't. Yes. <laughs> did he, is that what he said? That's pretty much, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess that it, I look at it now and I guess, yeah, he did bribe me. And is that a bad thing? I think it's kind of bad when you're bribing your kids. I mean... <laughs> See, I disagree with you. I think that if you're getting people to do the right thing for the right reasons, it's always best. But if that fails, getting them to do the right thing for the <laughs> wrong reasons, that's life. Sometimes that's the way it's got to go. So you think that sometimes just got to do the wrong thing to get them to go and the, do the right thing overall? I don't think it's the wrong thing to offer you the trip. As a present. A present? Is now is now a present? Well, what would you do? <laughs> what should he have done? For me, I would have said, 
Then don't go to school. See, but he wanted you to go to school. Like, like he, he. And I think I would have actually, if you had let me stay home from school maybe a week, and I would just, I mean, I couldn't have done it. I don't think I could have stayed home from school for the rest of the year. Why? After it's kind of like, if you ever have been homesick, you know, you you think it's going to be so great, but then after the first couple of days, it's like, oh, I just want to get back to school. Because you like probably you would have been bored. You would want to see your friends. It right. would just feel weird. It would. It would. I feel know weird, the days right? that I stayed home, it felt weird. I mean, I couldn't answer the phone. I couldn't be seen. I felt like I was hiding. I mean, I was hiding. I was. I, I felt it just didn't feel right. Wow. Now, Did you realize this at the time, or did you only realize it in retrospect? I realized it at the time. I, th- I I thought that if my dad had let me done had let me stay home. I would have stayed home for probably only a week at the very most, and I would have gone back to school. You, I mean, it's kind of like, if you gave me that much control, you know, and I might be less rebellious. Colin Dunn and his father, Corey, in Oregon. Act 2, Exodus of One. There are over 5,000 children each year who get caught at the borders or at the airport trying to come into this country without a parent or legal guardian. No legal papers. The law is clear-cut to what to do about them, but the situation often is not so clear-cut. They're taken to residential facilities. One is in Chicago, on a neighborhood street on the north side. It's innocuous-looking. A two-story white brick building bounded by an iron-wrought fence called the International Children's Center. It's run by a nonprofit agency under contract with the U.S. government and houses up to 70 children at a time, most of them teenagers from China, Africa, Central America, and elsewhere. Their average stay is two to three months. During that time, the children don't know what's going to happen to them, if they're going to be allowed to stay in the United States and they're going to be sent back. Alex Kotlowitz has this story about one of the memorable and difficult cases that they've faced in the last few years. On the afternoon of December 14th in 1999 at Chicago's O'Hare Airport, immigration officials pulled aside a three-year-old girl named Georgia Norman. She had arrived at O'Hare with a woman from Milwaukee, and customs officials discovered that Georgia's visa had been forged. Little was known about the girl other than her name and that she was from Jamaica. Given her age, she couldn't tell the officials very much, and the woman from Milwaukee was vague about her relationship with the girl. So the INS, concerned that the woman might be smuggling the girl to sell her as part of a child trafficking operation, took her into protective custody and brought her to the International Children's Center. She was not an obedient child when we first made contact with her. This is Hugo Ruiz, the center's director. For the first few weeks, Georgia threw tantrums when she didn't get her way, biting and spitting at those who tried to comfort her. She had nightmares. In the morning, she'd awake disoriented, asking for her family. She refused to eat her meals. The staff at the center had such trouble with Georgia that Hugo had to step in. And I took Georgia to bed, and I was talking to her and laying her down in bed, and she lifted up her leg and kicked down as I was holding her hand, and she dislocated my my thumb. I, I, I actually tried to grab my thumb and put it back into place, and, and, and I did. But uh, Georgia got scared because she saw that she had hurt me, and she started crying. And uh, I hugged her, and um, 
we sang some songs and uh, read her a couple of stories, and uh, she fell asleep. And, uh, and I went and got an ice bag. <laughs> so that was my real introduction to Georgia early on in the program. Hugo, who's 54, is even-keeled and patient. An immigrant himself from Peru, on some level he identified with the confusion and uncertainty the children at the center felt. Also, he had raised two daughters of his own. He continued to read to Georgia at night and let her tag along with him to meetings downtown. Soon, the crying and the fifth stopped. Georgia began to feel at home. She had the run of the place. She was a beautiful child with a smile, Hugo said, that could put anyone under her power. And because she was so much younger than most of the children at the center, she was doted on, especially by some of the older girls, many of whom had left younger siblings behind. I miss my family and I miss my, you know, little brothers. And I, you know, wanted to be close to her because it was a comfort for me as, my, as you know, well as for her. And we were, like, very close. We'd take a lot of pictures together. Sigal Abdi, who was 17 at the time, was from Somalia. Like some of the other kids here, she was running from horrific memories. In her case, the brutality of her country's civil wars, which had claimed the life of her father. Many other kids, especially the Chinese, are sent here by their parents, often with the aid of smugglers, in the hope that they'll find work and be able to send money home. Though the kids don't know the particulars of each other's stories, they feel connected by their common experiences. Seagal became George's roommate, and they became like sisters. One day, Seagal learned that her effort to gain political asylum had run into some problems. So I was very upset, and I was sitting in my room, and she came in, and she started dancing, and she had, she stole my, one of my makeup and put it on, and she put all over her face, and she was just so cute. And I just looked at her, and I started laughing. And I thought about it, you know. I say, this little kid, she's away from her family, and she's having a good time and just, you know, playing around. Me, I'm older than her. I shouldn't sit and cry. So we just went to the hallway and joined the other kids. Georgia seemed to know that since she was so much younger than everyone else, she could usually get her way, either through pouty stubbornness or through charm. I was visiting the center around that time, and I remember how the staff would break program rules for her. They snuck her extra candy, they brought her Barbie dolls, which she coveted, they hired a clown for her birthday. The older girls, like Seagal, used their allowances to buy her presents, and they would take turns braiding her hair. They taught her phrases in Spanish and Chinese. When the children posed for photographs, Georgia, like a little zelig, would dance her way into these pictures. At the center, she learned to ride a bike. She rode her first elevator. She learned to swim at the nearby YMCA. Meanwhile, Hugo tried to figure out her future, which first meant figuring out her past. In the afternoons, Hugo invited Georgia to come visit him in his first-floor office. And I remember sitting uh, in my desk, and she was not quite awake yet after her nap. And she'd come in and kind of poke her head in the door and just would show me her smile and then go back outside. And I said, come on in, Georgia. 
I would show her pictures of Jamaica, and, and she'd say, you know, um, that looks like, you know, where I used to live. Even after three months at the center, no one knew much about Georgia, where she was from in Jamaica, who her parents were, how she ended up in this country with this woman from Milwaukee. She was a three-year-old girl without a history. No one knew what to do with her. Three months turned into four, and eventually into six. Through all of this, the only absolute that Hugo knew was that if Georgia stayed at the center, she'd be okay. But he knew she couldn't remain there indefinitely. There were many takers in the program that would uh, wanted to, to take care of Georgia for the rest of her life. Including yourself? I, unfortunately, I was uh, probably the first one in line. I think I, I had been a father to, to, to her fairly easily. Why has the U.S. government kept this three-year-old in detention for six months? I on America Investigates. In the wake of Elian Gonzalez, Georgia's story made national news, and the outrage was that a three-year-old girl had been in custody for so long. TV crews parked outside the center. Local congressmen, along with Jesse Jackson, demanded a meeting with Georgia to make sure she was okay, which of course she was. They wanted something done for this three-year-old girl, but there really weren't any clear options. Then a reporter from Milwaukee located Georgia's mother near Runaway Bay, a resort town on Jamaica's north coast. It appeared that Georgia's mother had willingly given Georgia to the Milwaukee woman in the hope that she might have a better life in America. Georgia's mother also made it clear to authorities that she wanted Georgia back home. So a decision was made to reunite Georgia with her mother. And while that seemed like the obvious choice, it worried those who had taken care of her. What does it mean to send a child back to a parent who is willing to give her away? This question weighed heavily on Hugo. When it came time to go back to Jamaica, I uh, was the one that went back with her, and that was a tough uh, trip. It was a, a very difficult trip. Um, every child deserves to be with, with their parent. Um, in the case of Georgia, Given the background of what happened, I, I, you know, my my fear would be that Georgia would be put through another episode, much like the first one. Georgia left the center in June of 2000, just two weeks after she turned four. Hugo woke her early for a 6 a.m. flight. She wore her favorite outfit a blouse with umbrellas, blue jeans, and tennis shoes with blinking lights. Hugo tried to prepare Georgia for the trip, letting her know that he was taking her to her mother. But it soon became apparent that Georgia thought this was simply a visit and that she'd return to Chicago with Hugo. When they arrived at the airport in Kingston, they were greeted by a representative from the Jamaican government. You know, I, I introduced her to the gentleman that, that came in from the uh, Jamaican uh, Child and Welfare Services and um, said, this is the guy that's going to take you back to, to your mom. And then she asked me the, the real tough question that, uh, uh, yeah, that, that I can still remember her little face. And uh, she had all her uh, favorite toys, and we had made, she, she went back with lots of bags and luggage, and she was holding her favorite doll, and she said, 
you're coming with me? And I had to tell her that I wasn't. Tough. Tough to see a child that trusts you and cares about you. Um, you sort of feel like you're in them now. This past May, Hugo began to look for Georgia. She would be nearly eight years old. Uh, I'm looking for Georgia Norman. Do you know anybody, any a young girl by the name of Georgia Norman? Well, I'm coming from the United States. I'm trying to find uh, a friend of mine that I met a long time ago, and I'm just trying to find out where she's at. In those intervening four years, Hugo hadn't stopped worrying about Georgia. He wondered what kind of life she had in Jamaica, if in fact she was still there. Maybe her mother had given her away again. In the main hallway of the center, he had hung a photo of Georgia on roller skates, taken just before she left the center on her birthday. And he held on to the two American airline ticket stubs that he used to fly Georgia back home. They remained in his wallet for four years. Well, I want to find Georgia. I want to know what happened. Um, I want to find out what is that um, that has gone on in her life. Um, one of the things that I told Georgia when we parted in uh, Kingston was that I would see her soon. And it's been a while and I want to be able to keep my word. Over the past few years, Hugo had talked to me about going down to Jamaica to find Georgia. He had never done anything like this with any other children from the center. This past spring, I suggested we finally make the trip. Truth was, we weren't even certain we'd be able to find her. We pulled an old phone number from her lawyer's documents. We tried calling Jamaicans with the same last name, but nothing. Then shortly before we were going to depart, I found Sheila Ramos, the Milwaukee woman who had brought Georgia into this country with a forged visa. Remember, officials initially believed that she might be trafficking in children, planning to sell Georgia. That turned out not to be the case. But given those early suspicions, I was surprised that she so readily agreed to talk to me. I would have thought she'd want to put the whole episode behind her. I drove to her home in Milwaukee, not sure what to expect. Stop their custom, and they want to see her birth certificate. And they said, "Who is she?" And that's when I said, "This is the little girl that's come to live with me." And then that's when they say, "Hold up!" I didn't think I did nothing wrong. When Sheila Ramos tells the story of her decision to take Georgia back to the U.S. with her, it seems surprisingly innocent, and at the same time, strangely spur of the moment. Sheila's fifty and married, works with inner city youth, and has two grown children of her own. Once a year, Sheila would bring a group of Milwaukee teenagers to Jamaica, and on one visit, she met Georgia and her mother, Margaret Francis. Margaret would bring Georgia by the hotel so she could swim in its pool. Margaret and Sheila became friendly and stayed in touch. When Sheila returned the next year, the idea of her taking Georgia back to the U.S. came up. And she came over there. She said, it would be real nice if she can have a nice family to go home to. And I said, well... I mean, she could easily come and visit if she liked. And then um, 
Um, she said, sure, that'd be real good. You know, she said, you could be the godmother or I could be her legal guardian or something like that. And when I came back over to Jamaica, like like I said, two years later, she said, well, we're going to go to court. It all seems almost, casual is not the right word, but kind of matter of fact. I mean, that you you don't say to her, well, why would you want to give her up? It's it, you. So, and it could yeah. be because it's like, because I, I see the poverty there. So, to me, what she said, because she would have a better life with you. I didn't ask questions. I said, well, yeah, she would have a better life with me because you can see the child. You know, she was like, not really, don't, not, not dirty, but don't have nice clothes. I just looked at it and said, okay. And that was that. It didn't even occur to Sheila that she'd need anything more than legal guardianship to bring Georgia into the U.S. Her husband, Carlos, though, had reservations. And when he met Margaret, he wasn't reassured. There was no curiosity coming out of her. You know, I'm just, I was saying, ask me something, you know, no curiosity. No, how do you guys live? How are you going to do this? No questions would come out of her there. That that puzzled me and worried me a little bit. I said, come on, man, act like, act like, a, act like you're sad, you know. You're giving up your child, you know. But I didn't sense that. Not once. Never once did she changed her mind. In the end, Carlos gave in because Sheila wanted it so much. So it would be a real thrill for me because I have two boys and I always wanted a daughter. I would probably spoil her to death. She'd probably be in probably everything, karate, ballet, model, and she'd probably be in everything. After spending an afternoon with Sheila and meeting the people around her, I was convinced that her intentions were good. She runs a small youth center and not long ago took in a 17-year-old neighborhood girl who'd been abandoned by her family. The girl calls Sheila mom. But here's the last thing I expected to hear. Four years after trying to bring Georgia into this country, she's now trying again. She's attempting to formally adopt her. And though her first effort was denied, she's now appealing the decision. She had stayed in close touch with Margaret, There'd been regular visits, and they speak every week. And so Sheila was also able to solve the mystery of how to find Georgia. She gave me Margaret's phone number, and Hugo called to arrange a visit. As we headed down to Jamaica, we worried about what kind of situation we'd find Georgia in, whether she was still being cared for, what could be going on that her mother was still trying so hard to give her away. In a sense, things had come full circle. Four years ago, Georgia must have felt abandoned, first by her mother, then by Sheila, and finally by Hugo. And now, four years later, Georgia was back with her mother and faced being sent away yet again. It's exactly what Hugo had feared. Coming up, Alex and Hugo in Jamaica. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues.
This American Life from Ira Glass. Alex Kotlowitz's story continues, tracking down a little girl after four years. We arrived in Runaway Bay, Jamaica, on Memorial Day weekend. Margaret and Georgia had agreed to meet us at the hotel that first evening, and so we waited for them near the front door, watching a game of netball on the lobby's television. They soon arrived. They were holding hands. Georgia was four years older, nearly eight now, but she looked unmistakably like the young girl I'd met in Chicago. She wore hair and braids, two to the side like pigtails, and a double braid down her back. Hugo approached Georgia. How are you? How are you? She didn't recognize him and hid behind her mother, clutching one of her legs. You remember me? Do you? I know I lost a little bit of hair. (laughs) Both Georgia and her mother had dressed up for the occasion. Margaret, a sturdily built woman with a shortly cropped afro, wore a white linen short suit. Georgia wore a neatly ironed white button-down blouse and a short blue denim skirt. We went and sat by the pool, and Georgia, understandably wary of the microphone, kept her distance. Hugo sat in a chair, and Georgia stood a few feet away. So, how are you, honey? You look so cute. You've grown quite a bit. You were only this size when I brought you. Do you remember when I brought you here? Do you? Well, it's kind of like I thought she would probably be shy and not remember, and it would take a while to warm up. And uh, but I think after a little bit of talking with her, she started to make the connection. We had brought along photographs of two of the teenagers who had been particularly close to Georgia in Chicago. Who's this? Bihui. This is Bihui. One was of Biwi Lin, a girl from China, and the other was a photograph taken at the center of Seagal in Georgia. Uh-oh, who's that? Me. And Seagal. Yeah. Remember Seagal? Yeah. In the photo, Seagal is kneeling, her cheek pressed up against Georgia's. Both are smiling, their arms slung around each other. Have you seen this one? You haven't seen this one, have you? That's a girl. She's from Somalia. Okay. And she used to she used to really take care of her a lot. Okay. Margaret this smiled timidly. While she's reserved, Georgia, almost shy, it was clear she appreciated hearing of Georgia's time in Chicago, though she never asked Hugo any questions about her life there. I remembered Sheila's husband, Carlos, telling me how incurious she was. Margaret told Hugo about a visit she and Georgia took to Bob Marley's gravesite. Georgia walked over from the pool at that point. <laughs> she just reminded me of my I granddaughter. I know what about. I bought Bob Marley. And I know a lot about him. I know his stone, his temple, his house. And I know when he was born and I know when he died. When did he die? 1981. Ooh, when he was, when was he born? 1945. Ah. Georgia was warming up to Hugo. They traded facts about Bob Marley for a while, and then her attention drifted toward the pool. She waded in, and Hugo encouraged her to go deeper. She looked back at her mom, like any good kid would, for permission. <laughs> You've done a real good job with her. 
just seems like a real sweet girl and she hasn't, all she has done is just grown up. At the outdoor restaurant Margaret chose for dinner, a neighborhood hangout, music blared through refrigerator-sized speakers stacked one on top of the other. It was difficult to have a conversation. It was uncomfortable sitting around this picnic table, barely able to exchange a word. But it was easy to see that Margaret adored Georgia and that Georgia adored her mom. They shared a plate of chicken, and at one point Georgia snuggled up against her mother, and together they sang along with the music. Margaret and Hugo tried over the music to talk about the adoption, but Georgia soon ran out of food. You want more jerk chicken? You do? Come on, let's go get some. Come on, Georgia, help me. They strolled to the counter. I asked Georgia, I says, come on, give me your hand. I haven't, uh, I haven't held your hand for such a long time. And she says, but they're so greasy. And I said, it doesn't matter. Here, come on, give me your hand. So she gave me her hand, and we went up and walked up, walked up the steps and, um, and uh, put the order in. And um, I asked her, so I said, so Georgia, what, what, what do you want to do? And she said, well, I want to go to Chicago. I, that, that sort of surprised me. It surprised me that she would say that. And I said, why? She says, because I like it there. And I just wonder what, what it is that she liked about Chicago. Or I wonder if, as some of the other children sometimes are, she was coached to say that. George's answer unnerved Hugo. It wasn't what he had expected, especially after only a couple of hours together. Hugo and I assumed that Georgia was mimicking what her mother clearly wanted for her. As close as she and Georgia seemed, she was still planning to send her to live with Sheila in America. Back at the hotel, Hugo and I talked about the evening. I'm happy that she's the way she is. You know, she's clearly attached to her mom. You know, she's... She seems like a very normal kid. It must be somewhat of a relief, because I know you were anxious, and I know I was anxious, and I didn't have anywhere near as much at stake as she did about what we were going to yeah. find. It's, um, it really is a relief. You know, I, I know her recollections are not as vivid as I had hoped. But, you know, that's also good. It's also good that she's able to go ahead and move from that to bond with her mom the way she did. And uh, I still think it would uh, it'd be very difficult for her to leave her mom. The next morning, Georgia, her mother, and her mother's friend, Maury, picked us up at the hotel to visit their home. We wound our way along the serpentine roads of Jamaica's interior. It took half an hour to drive the eight miles, past groves of fruit trees, around hairpin turns, through the center of Brownstown, a bustling place where men were drinking beer and playing dominoes on the sidewalk. Margaret's house is rather remote on the far outskirts of the town. We turned onto a rutted dirt road, and then onto another dirt road, which was a slushy brown from yesterday's rains. 
We finally pulled up alongside a narrow concrete structure, which had been built into a steep hill. Margaret's home had belonged to her uncle, who had recently died. In places, the concrete is chipped away. Most of the window panes are missing or broken. There's no plumbing. Margaret showed us around. Now you see right now, you see in the next the part there, the flooring needs to fix. Yeah. There, huh? yeah. Along one side of the house, Margaret had hung a shower curtain. On a table sat a yellow plastic tub. So you fill up something and then yeah. it's okay. I see. So you come and get this full and then you basically yeah. you just kind of okay. That works. That's why I really want a better life for Georgia, you understand? I see. Good. We quickly realized that her mission for the day was to convince us how poor she was. In order for the adoption with Sheila to go through, one of the things that Margaret has to prove is that she's not able to adequately care for Georgia. She knew Hugo had an important job working with immigrant children, and so she hoped he'd have some influence. With that in mind, Margaret showed us the front room where she and Georgia shared a bed. She pointed out two sheets of plywood which covered a hole in the floor. She told us that her grown nephew, grown niece, and her niece's two-year-old son stayed in two small rooms off to the side. She took us into the kitchen, which is barely large enough for their two appliances, a gas stove and a rather small refrigerator, which is empty except for a pitcher of water and a brown bag of fruit. There are no sinks or cabinets. When I asked about her bathroom, she nodded to their pit toilet, which sits on a ridge, a short walk from the house. Margaret marched us from room to room with the indifference of a tired museum guide. It was clear that if she hadn't thought it might help George's chances to go to the U.S., she wouldn't have had us there at all. For our part, it felt voyeuristic. It was, to be honest, terribly awkward. Hugo tried to put everyone at ease. At the back of the house, we walked over to a stone cistern, which collects the drinking water off the house's tin roof. Swim pool? <laughs> yeah. How full does it get? Huh? Does it get all the way to the top sometimes or not? Yeah. When the rain fall out, it, it filled up. And then it flew over. There's a lot of fish inside there you now. So the fish would die, but the fish them in there. They're fishing your water here? Yeah. How do they get in there? No, my nephew. Bring them and put them in there. Her nephew would dump some river perch into the drinking water, which was murky and which usually boils before drinking. Hugo and Georgia wandered off to the side of the house. Georgia. You remember how I used to play over there in Chicago? With Bikwi and, and, and Sagal, sit down with this, the hand, patty cake. Hugo sat down with Georgia to reacquaint her with the game of patty cake. Then one, like this, back again, then with this one, no, the other side. Then again, then down, then up. Mm, mm, mm. As they played, Georgia very quietly brought up Chicago, as she did on the first night. She asked Hugo if she were to come to America and the same thing happened as last time, she gets stopped by immigration. Would she end up with him? No, I said, if I go back and I don't have my visa, I would reach over where you are. Maybe if they do catch you. Hmm? If they catch you. If they don't catch you, then you go with your 
What's her name? Sheila. Sheila. Where do you want to go, with Sheila or with us? With you. Hugo asked her why she wanted to return to Chicago. Because, she said, I want to see Seagal and Biwi. Meanwhile, Margaret and I were talking on the front porch. We leaned on the railing, overlooking the tropical bush and the dirt road. I asked Margaret why she was so intent on giving Georgia to Sheila. I really don't, I really don't want to stay here, neither. Because of sometimes of um, violence and all those things, and you have a lot little more school, little boys, and don't go to school and just stay on, you know. She told me that the local boys, many of whom don't go to school, harass Georgia, often grabbing her by the hand. Margaret also said that she worked as a domestic, but only part-time because she wanted to be at home each day when Georgia arrived from school. So you're worried that she's somebody might take advantage of her? Right. And has like, that happened at all? Is that people tried to do that? Like when he when she come from school and she tell me that, um, Mommy, you know what's on guy? And the boss tell me, I said, what? And give me three more here. I said, what? So he give me three more here. Because, like, she's eight now, you understand? So he giving oh, her three more, three more here. Years. Right. Three more years. The guy on the bus meant that's when Georgia will be old enough to be a mother. Margaret, who's now 39, had her first child at 21 and eventually had six children by four different men. Georgia is her youngest. None of the men stuck around, including Georgia's father, who has disappeared from her life. When Margaret's oldest turned 16, she informed Margaret that she was pregnant. When Margaret heard that, she cried. So, I just don't want to see that come happen to Georgia. I just want her to grow up and have things, have what she can have, understand? Like go to school and take her education, pass her subject and get a nice job before she go and say, boy, she go have kids. Can I walk in her mother's footstep? <laughs> she can't walk in my footsteps, Margaret says. Not, I hope she doesn't. She can't. Margaret was adamant about that. Do you ever think how I'm going to be here without my daughter? Really, because it's my flesh and blood still, so I would miss her, but I just want the best for her. But it's got to be hard for you. I can tell how close you are with Georgia. Yeah, but the reason why I'm because I don't have anybody to help me, so I, I want to do something for myself because I don't want to live on anybody to say, give me this and give me that and give me this and give me that. I want to have something for myself and achieve something for myself too. I'm getting old, I'm 39 years old. I want to have something for myself, you understand? But it's got to be so hard as a mother to let go. Margaret didn't answer. She swatted at the mosquitoes. She stared at the bush on the other side of the road. I wondered if, given her reality, she had by necessity stopped asking herself these questions. All I could think to say to break the long silence was... Boy, it's humid, huh? As we spent time in Jamaica, it became clear that Georgia's situation was not at all extraordinary. Virtually everyone we met had a similar story to tell. 
During the drive from Kingston to Runaway Bay, we had told our driver, Audley Forrester, about Georgia, and he said that just a few days earlier, a complete stranger had left a five-year-old boy carrying a backpack full of clothes at the gate to his father's house. They just left one at, 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 at the gate. They just left him at the gate and just leave him like that. His mother just come and leave him like that. So your father's taking care of a child now? Yes, right now, yeah. And it's not the first time. Audley's father, a farmer in his 70s, plans to raise his child, maybe even legally adopt him if he can find the mother. Then when we visited the Sunflower Hotel where Margaret and Sheila first met, we encountered the hotel's owner, Vanna Taylor. She told us this story of how she came to take in a child seven years ago. The child is now 11. Vanna was at the beach early one morning and saw a mother with her daughter. It was a school day. And then I said, why is the child not at school? Because I'm always worried about that. And then the mother said, well, I have no clothes, I have no food, I have nothing to send the child to school. So I said to her, you know, why don't you give me the child or something like that? And then she said, um, fine, you know. She said, she said to the child, you want to go live in Mithil? And the child said, yes. That was it. That matter of fact. That and by the time I got home, the she was here. It's very easy. It's much easier than having one, isn't it? <laughs> there was, there's a saying in Jamaica that at one stage children were given away like puss kitten, meaning like just like a cat, people would give away their children. This is Claudette Pius, who works with children in Spanish Town near Kingston. She says it's actually rare for Jamaican children to be sent to America. Usually it's the parents who go, leaving behind their children with family, friends, or sometimes on their own. It's become so common that there's a name for the kids left behind, barrel children, because they receive barrels of goods from their parents, mostly name-brand shoes and clothes. Claudette herself was abandoned. Her mother emigrated to Canada in search of work and left Claudette behind with an aunt. Claudette told me she never forgave her mother. I got many letters. I still have some. And I got a, I can remember her sending me a tape recorder and saying I should um, talk on the tape recorder and send the tapes to her. I would just sit by myself and talk to this tape recorder. I would, sometimes I'd quarrel with her. <laughs> sometimes I'd tell her all the things happening. It was, sometimes it was almost like a diary. It was a good day I would tell her. Some bad days I would tell her. But interestingly, I didn't send the tapes. In her work with children today, Claudette won't take any in. She won't build a shelter. She feels it's too important that they stay with their own families. Her own mother eventually returned to Jamaica when Claudette was an adult. I remember saying to her, but whatever I become in life have nothing to do with you. That's what you said to your mother. And she was very upset. And she said she was, I was very ungrateful because she supported me. She sent the money. And I said, it's not about the money. It's about that connection, that being there for me. When I wanted to cry, when I wanted to laugh, when I wanted to just to hug you, when I wanted you to be close. Hugo believes what Claudette does, that if at all possible, kids should stay with their parents. And like Claudette, he had had his own experience. Growing up in Peru, his family at one point fell on hard times. His mother had the chance to give him up, 
and uncle offered to raise him. But she held on to Hugo. It was more important to her, poor or not, that her son be with his mom. But in the nine years Hugo has been at the Children's Center, he's begun to understand why parents might let go of their children. He learned it first through the children from India, whose parents had been conned by smugglers into thinking they were sending their children to America to attend great schools and to live with well-to-do families, when in fact the smugglers planned to put them to work at menial jobs. Hugo would occasionally talk by phone with these parents, and the first thing they'd ask about were the schools their children presumably attended. I used to be fairly judgmental as far as that went. Um, there's a lot of people that do not understand, but I understand today why there are they separate from their their, their children. And um, I don't think they love them any less than we do uh, love our children. I just think that they're so desperate that they don't have any other options. And um, and I and, and I understand that piece a lot better today. I mean, this is the thing that perplexes me. I, I mean, I think I can understand the first time around. Georgia's real young. She's three years old. and And Margaret's you know, living a really difficult life, a woman comes along who she clearly on some level admires, maybe doesn't know well, and offers to take George in, and Margaret goes along with it, and then everything goes awry, and she gets her kid back, and I would think that would be the most glorious moment in some ways, you know, her... Uh, she doesn't come across that way. Well, yeah, and then she doesn't want... She's still willing, here we are four years later, and she's still willing and ready to give Georgia up. I think of what, you know, what goes to Georgia's head right now. You know, and I mean, I'm sure she has questions as well that she's not able to express to her mom or maybe to anyone. Not yet, anyway. Later on, I'm sure that she'll want some answers. What kind of questions? You know, why am I being sent here again? I, you know, I'm here with my mom. Uh, and at this age, it, it's going to be a fairly difficult separation, uh, legal or not. Um, it's going to be a difficult situation. That I don't know that Georgia uh, will ever forget at this age. Because Georgia is now in what I consider to be a stable environment. You know, and this is, this is where she should remain. Don't worry about the thing. Because every little thing is going to be all right. That night at the hotel bar, Georgia sang along with the piano player. Rising sun in the morning, smile with the rising sun, three little birds. Margaret looked on beaming. It was the one time she seemed completely unburdened. And it was the same with Georgia as well. Ironically, one of the reasons she's doing so well is Sheila who sends 50 to to $100 every couple of weeks. She's also paying for Georgia's private school education. Singing sweet songs of men and poor and true. This is a message to you. 
We left the next day after stopping by to bring Georgia presents and a cake to celebrate her eighth birthday. As she waits for adults in two countries to figure out her fate, I suppose the hopeful thing is that she's been in the same place before and came out of it okay. Or so it seemed. What has to be toughest on Georgia, though, are all the unknowns. Hugo once told me that the longer he works with children like Georgia, it becomes more complicated, not less. So many of these children, they don't seem to fully belong anywhere. Alex Kotlowitz, his most recent book is Never a City So Real. Four years ago, when Georgia came to the United States, about 5,000 minors were stopped at U.S. borders and airports. This year, 6,300 are expected. The number of residential centers for them, like the one Hugo runs, has jumped from 8 to 20 in just four years. Our program produced today by Diane Cook and myself with Alex Plumberg, Wendy Dorjane, Jane Feltis, Sarah Koenig, and Lisa Pollack. Our senior producer is Julie Snyder. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production out from Todd Bachman and Will Reichel. It is Will's last show. He has performed bravely and capably in the face of great adversity, and we are sorry to see him go. Thanks today to Katie Dunn, Hugo Ruiz, Jennifer Chalmers, Mary Meg McCarthy, and Richard Troop. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org, where you can listen to our programs for free, or you know you can download audio of our show at audible.com slash thisamericanlife, where they have public radio programs, best-selling books, even the New York Times, all at audible.com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life is provided by Volkswagen of America. On the road of life, there are passengers, and there are drivers, and then there are those of us who are here inside the car radio. We're passengers, too, you know. Passengers who appreciate decent suspension and low-end torque as much as anybody else. Learn more about all that at VW.com. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia in the crowded gym locker room. I can report to you, he just repeats this mantra over and over. Can't throw in the towel. Can't throw in the towel. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. This is my message to you. P-R-I. Public Radio International.